And so now we're going to turn to Acts 17, and what you're going to see here is an amazing thing. I love this scripture. Because you see Paul stand and speak to Greeks about the gospel and never mention scripture once. This is a man that was at the feet of Gamaliel. He could have done that, right? He could have let them know the Hebrew scriptures, but instead he chose to use their culture to reach them. So let's read this, Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek, seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not, ought not to think that the divine is being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Lori. Some of you may be wondering who I am if you're new. My name is Gabe. And some of you may be wondering who I am if you've been around. Uh, I've got uh, this big old beard. Um, I went uh, for a couple weeks with my wife and kids uh, to a little lake house outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, and we swam in the lake, we fished in the lake, we rode on the lake, I read by the lake, you know, all those things. Uh, but it's really, really good to be back with everybody this morning and to dive into just the brilliance of God's Word. I love this passage in Acts 17, but before we do... Um, just because I still have a little bit of vacation wiggling around in my brain, why don't we pray so we can zero in together, okay? Dear God, thanks so much for this morning. Thank you that your spirit promises to illuminate, to really just help bring the light of this text to bear on our minds and our hearts. May we have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the beauty of your word, and how it continues to instruct us today. God, may we be the kinds of people who trust your word and are shaped by it for your glory, our good, and the impact of our world as we seek to love our neighbor as ourself. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine a scenario. Imagine you're kind of going about your business throughout the day, and somebody asks you, what do you believe anyway? Um, you could pick the setting, right? It could be a neighborhood association meeting. 
and you have this awkward segue. It could be at a conference room at work with some colleagues. It could be at a happy hour with some friends. It could be across the table having coffee with a close friend. But whatever the circumstance, you fill it in. For whatever reason, they've noticed something in you, they, and they want to know whatever's going on in you, are you for real, and is, does that have bearing on reality for them? And so they ask the question, what do you believe anyway, Right? And the question that sparks up in the back is, well, how am I going to respond? And that's the, 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 the guiding question for us this morning. How will you respond to that kind of question? How will you respond when those moments come? When people are sitting there, whether it's a friend, a family member, or whatever, is sitting there curious, maybe a bit skeptical, maybe their guard is up. How do you start your response? What do you not say? What do you say? And how do you bring it all together in the end? This question... It comes up a lot if you're a Christian who's centering your life on Jesus and your life now begins to challenge and both coincide with the surrounding culture. And what we come to see is that this happens again and again in the book of Acts for Christians, wherever God leads them. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me to Acts chapter 17? It's found on page number 926 of our community Bibles. If you're new, we've been walking through this book of Acts for the most part since January. Acts is the origin story of the church, of what these early followers of Jesus did and said right after Jesus ascended into heaven. And what we've come to see is one of the best defining markers of who they are and what God has called them to do is to be a people sent. And they've been responding to this question over and over and over again throughout Acts. And today is no different. Paul, just to kind of help us remember, give you a quick character sketch. I always try to think of him as not like the artist formerly known as, but the Pharisee formerly known as Saul. He grew up in a Jewish home. He was rigorous in his training, as Lori highlighted, under Camillo. And he was a longtime persecutor of Christians and now is like this avid promoter of the faith, seeking every opportunity he can to share the good news of Christ. He's the Johnny-come-lately apostle, and he finds himself here in Athens, now, Athens is maybe one of those cities that have been mentioned in Acts that many of us maybe have heard of at one point or another. Athens is an amazing city of culture, of philosophy, of ideas, of architecture, of art. I mean, it's, it's a brilliantly constructed and a very thoughtful city. But what they had centered more than anything else was this centering of religion. Athene Athenians understood maybe better than we do in the, first, or the 21st century, is that you can't bifurcate, you can't segregate religion and then have everything else. Athenians understood that the way that you saw the world, what you saw as ultimate, your religious perspective on the world shaped your ideas, your architecture, your art, and your philosophy. It was all intertwined. And this was, this was on display everywhere. Some historians say that Athens had some 30,000 statues of Greek gods lining up the streets and the, and the thoroughfares. I mean, it was everywhere. This was the world in which they found themselves. And Paul finds himself here, not according to plan. And I want you to imagine this. Jew, a, a Jewish man, Paul, who grew up Jewish, who every single image of some sort of deity would bring about this repulsion in him as a Jewish man. And now he's surrounded by these, what is often called idols, 
everywhere he goes, and earlier in the text, before what Lori read for us, we see that Paul was provoked, is the word that's used. His heart's heavy over the mass amounts of idols that are surrounding him when he's there in Athens. And so he starts having conversations about Jesus with everybody he meets. He goes to the synagogue first, as is his tradition, and then he makes his way to the marketplace. He's talking with everyone, and then suddenly everybody starts talking about Paul. <laughs> and some of the words that are used of him are, who's this babbler? That's not maybe your, you know, the greatest defining marker you want for yourself, but who's this babbler? And then others were curious about, okay, what is he actually talking about? And so they invite him to the Areopagus, and it's still there today. This is the place where ideas were shared, where decisions were made, and it sat up on a rock that overlooked the whole city. All of these ideas and their religion that has culminated in the city, the ideas that they decide upon, the philosophy that comes to govern that city, they watch as it looks over and shapes the very city in which they have these dynamic conversations. It's still there today. You can go look at it. Well, Paul is invited now to this crucial idea center, this major decisive community. And they, they bring him in and they say, hey, we've heard you talking a little bit about Jesus and the resurrection, which to be clear for them probably meant two different deities, um, Jesus and this other deity, resurrection, because um, resurrection was not a framework that they believed, encapsulated, or were curious about. Okay, so they bring him in and they say, we've heard you kind of talking about all these things. Can you bring it all back together for us? Can you make sense of this for us? In other words, what is it that you believe anyway? And Paul's response is brilliant. A response, while, while it doesn't determine how we go about sharing the good news of what God has done in Christ in every single situation, it is a great instructive model on how to do it really well most of the time. And so the question we're going to be answering this morning, the question this text, I think, reveals for us as followers of Jesus in the 21st century is how do we share the gospel with folks in a meaningful way? How do we share the gospel with folks in a meaningful way? In other words, how do we tell about this good news of what God has done in Jesus in such a way that we're talking with rather than past people? And we can both seek mutual understanding. And I want to be very clear, the answer to that question is not, not this morning anyway, a series of events that you use in every situation. I'm not giving you a roadmap this morning. Rather, when we dissect Paul's response, we actually find three regular practices. So three practices that guide for thoughtful and relevant evangelism. Three practices that we see the fruit of when he actually comes to give his response to this pretty audacious question. I mean, it's pretty amazing opportunity. And if you're here, I just want to say this to you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope you know we're really glad you're here. I hope, I hope this morning is deeply encouraging to you in two ways. I hope you know that, that we actually are consistent with what is up on the name of our church, you know, Christ community. We are deeply committed to Jesus as the one and only way to salvation and wholeness this world over. And then secondly, I hope you're encouraged to know not, one, not only that we are who we say we are, but that two, we are deeply committed to you. Because if we believe that and we never talked about how we share that and to do that thoughtfully, that feels a bit exclusive, doesn't it? 
But as a faith community centered on Jesus who deeply believe this, if we deeply believe this and we deeply care for you, we want to know how to communicate this clearly in a meaningful way such that we have mutual understanding. So that's what we're going to do this morning because we believe your life is at stake today and for eternity, revolving around what you do with Jesus. And we want to be thoughtful in how we enter into your world and we're aware of the world in which we find ourselves, okay? So these three practices. So how do we share the gospel with folks in a meaningful way? Here we go. Let's dive right on in. If you haven't already, turn with me to Acts 17. The first practice we learned from Paul in our text is, one, learn to see worship everywhere. Learn to see worship everywhere. And I love how Paul starts his response. This is explicit right here in verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, you don't have to have a bust of Zeus in your front yard to be considered a zealous worshiper. Paul understood, and what the first century, you know, normal person understood that we so often forget is that everyone is worshiping something. Everyone, regardless of your religious conviction or the very, very lack thereof. And if this is a surprising statement, it's probably because in our culture, we, we often don't do a good job defining, explaining what worship is. Worship, as one brilliant theologian and commentator, James K.A. Smith, puts it, is this way. It is an activity that both reveals what already has our hearts, and simultaneously, in that very activity, it further grabs our heart, demanding our committed love above everything else. So worship, it reveals what you value, what you put as ultimate in every other category of the world, while simultaneously reaffirming that commitment and allegiance to that one thing. It's an activity. It's more than music. It's more than communion. It's more than a sermon. It's more than what we do when we gather together. It's never less than that, but it's so much bigger and broad. And wherever Scripture, this is important too, wherever Scripture talks about idolatry or idols, like it does here, it's capturing this idea that worship is actually directed to something or to someone other than the triune God who has revealed himself throughout history and so within Scripture. And everyone is worshiping, with, worshiping something. Everyone, every single one of us in here still wrestles with worshiping idols, something other and the triune God. And we worship these idols because, this is so important, because they tell us they're ultimate. Or our family of origin. We grew up in a family that told us that they were ultimate, that they were the most important thing about the world and how you present yourself. Or we grew up in a culture that told us that those were the best goals or the best life and this is how you pursue it. And we believed them. These idols, they promise the best life possible, such that when God speaks through the authors of Scripture and says, this is what the best life looks like, and this is how you get there, and then we hear another message, either from our family of origin or the surrounding culture or our work environment, no, this is the best life, and this is how you get there, and you choose this, that's worship, because you're believing, you're trusting that it's going to deliver something better than God can and what He's promised in His Word. And the most entrenched idols are the ones we don't even see anymore. They aren't novel, meaning they've always been there. They don't feel like idols. They feel like fixtures in life. And I can guarantee you, everybody in Athens 
They probably walked to work every day seeing one out of the 30,000 idols because they were just fixtures of life. They were born there. This is the way it is. This is just the way the world works. And so the idols are just the way the world works. Those goals and what you perceive as ultimate are just the way the world works until God steps in. So what's a place of worship outside a church? I was trying to think through this just for our context. What's a, what's a place of worship outside a church or a religious commitment that doesn't involve some sort of statue to Aphrodite, right? Um, well, a good example, and James K.A. Smith does a good job in actually detailing this out in some of his work, a good place of worship is the mall. And some of you are like, I haven't been to one of those since the 90s. Um, <laughs> no, but what I mean is like Crown Center or the Plaza or the online marketplace, Amazon marketplace, right? And I'm not trying to demonize the marketplace. This is a really important thing that we should have marketplaces that make it easy to purchase the, the needs or the, the, the supplies that actually meet our physical and broader needs to carry on life. That's good. But it's a slippery slope from going to enjoying good food and acquiring our needs to subtly defining ourselves now by an experience such that I shop, therefore I am. <laughs> and some of you laugh, but that's knowing laughter. You know, it's like, it's, and it's subtle underneath there where it's like suddenly I feel most alive when that credit card gets swiped. I feel most alive when I get something new. I feel, I feel like there's, that, that, that life is the way it should be because I've got this new thing that I just purchased. Or maybe another way to put it is, you begin to believe the more I buy, the happier I'll be. The more I buy, the happier I'll be. You know, the more I acquire, the happier I'll be. And you know the scenario I'm talking about. We've all had that moment. You're like walking or you're surfing the web and you come across these ads. And these people, they just look so happy right? They look so fulfilled. It's like they have it all together. And mainly the reason they have it all together is because they have all this stuff together, right? And if you want that feeling, all you got to do is buy that stuff. And it almost seems too good to be true, partly because it is, because they've been airbrushed and edited, that that's actually not even a part of reality. But, but there's this element of, oh, that's what I'm missing. That's what it looks like to have the best life. That's the ultimate pathway to happiness. And so we hear the promises that if you feel broken, if you feel hurt, you feel lonely, you feel unlovable, there's a remedy here. You can buy your best life now. Do you want safety? Do you want wholeness? Do you want acceptance? It's all for sale. And why do we give in? Like why do we, and we've all had those moments of overindulgence, Right? Those moments where you've kind of devoted yourself to too much stuff, you rack up a little bit of that credit card debt that builds anxiety and you know it's going to build anxiety, but you feel like you got to do it anyway. And it's not because anyone in this room is stupid, right? But instead, it's because our hearts have been grabbed in that moment. We believed that that was going to get us what we longed for. We trusted that it was going to deliver the best life. We worshiped without even realizing it. And then what? You get home with all the bags and you put them on the couch or the counter and you feel like this letdown because life is still as hard as it was before you bought all that stuff. And there's actually a term for this. I have a business minor. From, you know, it's like, I remember studying this. Like there, there's a thing called buyer's remorse. <laughs> you like, you get home and you're like, oh, this is uh, 
not as great as I thought. And then you don't have as much energy that you actually want to go return the stuff and go through all the rigmarole. And then you also simultaneously have this hope in the back of your mind that they could still deliver on their promise. This is just one small example of how worship is everywhere. Learn to see it. We're being, we're being presented options this world over on what we can devote our lives to, our time, and ultimately, such that we sacrifice all these other things, good things, in order to have that. It's everywhere. This def definition of what's ultimate, this grabbing of our heart and simultaneously revealing of what we consider ultimate and how it shapes our time, our budget, our calendar. Do you see it in you? Do you see it in the world around you? Learn to see worship everywhere because Paul does. And it's brilliant because that's the way that God teaches us to see the world through his word. Okay, next. Only when you learn to see worship everywhere will you then be able to, number two, look for common ground and cracks. Look for both common ground and cracks. Common ground being when, when you're walking with someone who has not centered their life on Jesus Christ, we should have common ground with everyone, actually, because we have shared hopes. We have a lot of shared dreams, a lot of shared goals, desires. Everybody wants to be accepted. Everybody wants to be forgiven. Everybody wants to be made whole. There should be some common ground there. No matter who you're talking with, there's human dignity because every single person is being, has been made in the image of God. And so through actually through the broader natural world, there's an element where we all get part of the story right. There's parts in which we can see the world as it ought to be. But there's also cracks. There's cracks in where those hopes and dreams, when they're not centered on Jesus, actually lead to heartache, that feel inadequate. And so for, when we're in these moments, when you're learning to see worship everywhere, then you're able to now look for common ground and cracks. And let's see how Paul does that in his response. Verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, isn't this fascinating? Paul starts with common ground. A, a man who grew up Jewish, still an avid follower of Jesus. There is no other God, right? And where does he not go? He doesn't go, look at all these idols that you've got. They're, you know, they're all, all these elements are so wrong. You're so empty. No, first he starts with common ground. I notice you have this altar to an unknown God. And there in the midst of all these goddesses and gods, he finds his starting point. You see, the agnostic nature of the Athenians left the door open for an unknown God. And Paul wants to show them of the God that they don't know, the one true God who's over it all. And he goes, this is a great starting point. I see that you're longing for more. You've got myriads of gods, and yet you still have an altar to an unknown God because you know there's more, because everything else you have surrounding you still isn't enough. I see that longing. Let's chase that down. Let's start there. And then he goes on. Look with me at verse 23 again. This, therefore, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, to be clear, Paul had a pretty mixed crowd when he's standing there in this unique space of decision and ideas 
He had a mixed crowd, but two of the most predominant philosophical groups who are listening to Paul's presentation are the Epicureans and the Stoics. We actually see that detailed out in our text. The Epicureans and the Stoics. Now the Epis, as I call them, the Epis, they believed that the gods were real. They believed that the gods were real, but they were totally disconnected from the world. They didn't need humankind. And they actually didn't engage. So actually life was led about by chance. And there's nothing after the grave. And so if life is led about by chance and there's nothing after the grave and the gods are totally disinterested in how the world works, then you can understand why for the Epicureans their ultimate goal was pleasure in moderation. Because in their framework, the best form of pleasure, and actually this is good rationality, the best way to enjoy something is to enjoy it in moderation. They understood this in their deep desire towards pleasure. Now the Stoics, on the other hand, believed that there was a godlike force, a divine force that created the world as well. But it was not personal in the way that we think about personal. It was this broader force that actually then found itself in all the elements of creation. God was not above his creation. He was in every aspect of it. This is a form of pantheism. And so how do you find the best life? How do you find the good life? According to the Stoics, Stoics, since God is in everything, he's in you. And if he's in you, the best way to find the best life is to tap into the divine within you. In other words, the truth is only found within yourself and your own rationality. And what's fascinating with the couple verses I read before I gave you those two explanations is that neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics would have pushed back against anything that Paul has said up to this point. There would have been a lot more head nods, maybe some questions, but a lot more head nods than disagreement as to what Paul has said. He is building and finding and fabricating this amazing common ground where they actually have some mutuality. He's showing to them that he respects them because he's learned what they value and understands their worldview. And he's building an audience that's absolutely brilliant. And then he goes on, as we see in the text, he quotes two of their own poets. As Laurie brilliantly said, he actually doesn't quote scripture. He brings in biblical ideas all throughout, for sure. But he doesn't quote scripture. He actually quotes their own poets. Most commentators think it was Epimenides of Crete and Erotus. And he quotes them as kind of the starting point. These are their authority figures and how they see the world. And Paul says, hey, those that you think have got it right, I think they've got it right in some degree too. And I want to quote, and I want you to know that one, I know them. And actually, let's tease out what they really mean when they say that. Let's actually really tease out what it is they're trying to communicate when your authority figures are speaking truth. And you can just imagine all of them sitting on the edge of their seat thinking, okay, Paul, how is any of this new? This doesn't, well, you haven't gotten to the Jesus part yet. Um, uh, so, so keep going. And you can see he's suddenly got them listening. He's earned their respect even here. But Paul isn't there to just affirm their culture. He's not there to just tell them what they already knew about themselves. He's there to share news, new news, good news about what God has done in the world through Jesus. Yeah, Paul understood that everybody had part of the story right. So he looks for that common ground, but he under also understood that everybody's got part of the story wrong. He looks for common ground, but he now he begins to reveal the cracks. Outside of the gospel, our best attempts to explain the world always come up short, always. 
in a culture that highly values rationality and reason and being able to explain the world, they have an altar that highlights their ignorance. And Paul says, listen, that ignorance, that was okay for a period to some degree, no longer. And despite what the Epicureans, which you might want to believe that the gods are totally disconnected, he's not. Despite what the Stoics say, that your God is within you, no, he's over you. And now you start to see the breaking of the common ground to now highlight the cracks. And Paul says, the true God, he made the world as it is on purpose. This is verse 26 of chapter 17. Why? So that we might seek God in the hope that we might feel our way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Isn't that so fascinating? He contradicts with the Epicureans that he's totally disconnected, so life is just chance, so chase pleasure. Or the Stoics, it's only here within us. No, 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 there's a God who's outside of us, and he's actually created the world in such a way that we might know him and be known by him. This is amazing news, Athenians. He looks for the common ground, but he starts to now reveal the cracks. Where does the gospel speak to the frustrations and the heartaches where Epicureans felt absolutely helpless or, and quite fearful to reach out to the gods that they might actually engage the world or the Stoics completely helpless that there is ever such a thing as a personal God who longs to be known. But it's what beautiful news. He meets them in their heartache that God longs to be known and to be known by those who are seeking him. You see, as Christians, our call that flows out of Matthew 28 to go and make disciples and Acts 1-8 to be witnesses of Jesus throughout the world it's a call to both understand and articulate culture better than it can itself. We can enter the culture where we are and we should find common ground but also be honest about the cracks. I think one example of this kind of in our current context is the foundation around human rights. For Christians, um, we come from a Judeo-Christian basis that God created human beings in his image. Paul's actually going to that point here in our passage as well. Because we are made in God's image, every single human being, regardless of their race, their socioeconomic status, or their capacity, has indelible worth and certain inalienable rights. This was the foundation for human rights as we know them today. But many of my atheist friends, and I consider them deep friends, those who want to declare that God was not necessary for the origination of the world, nor is he necessary for the organization and the flourishing of the world going forward, who also are adamant about human rights and convicted that that is a good idea and a necessary component to a flourishing culture, have to acknowledge that they have now therefore no supporting foundation for why human rights is a valid understanding of community. If we're merely a chance mixture of goo that ultimately becomes you, then survival of the fittest wins the day. One of the greatest and most consistent atheistic philosophers in history, Nietzsche, was brilliant when he said, listen, without God, there's only what? The will to power. Morality. What is morality? But the status of whatever you consider right to get you to the next point of power. Morality, truth, are just flexible terms to get you into the next step of power. 
That's what the evolutionary framework without a God that we are made in the image of provides. There are no rights and there are no wrongs and therefore there is no basis to push against wrongs if there is no God in which we are made in the image of. So we can stand beside friends, colleagues who are atheists and say, yes, we share the desire for human rights for all human beings. But the crack in the atheistic framework is that there is no foundation by which that idea came from an atheistic framework. It came from a Judeo-Christian theological framework, and atheism is borrowing from Christianity and the broader Judeo-Christian ideology. And if they're genuinely honest, they'll find themselves much more in Nietzsche's camp, which is a scary place to be this world over. So we look for common ground, but we're honest about the cracks. Both are there. And once you've done that, once you've learned to see worship everywhere and you look for common ground and cracks, how do you tie it all together? Paul brilliantly instructs us here. And number three, lead to someone more. Lead to someone more. Look at the conclusion of his response in verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He commands all people everywhere, not some people in most places, not all people in this one particular locale, but all people everywhere. And he's actually given enough assurance for all by raising him from the dead. Paul understood that everyone's looking for more. Everyone. This is why they have this altar to an unknown God. It's why we get stuck in addiction. It's why we work ourselves to death. It's why we spend our lives chasing after the next thrill. Because there's got to be more. But that more that Paul comes to present isn't an airtight argument. You can argue all day long and actually provide a logical, deductive reason as to why Jesus is the answer for our deepest longings. A leads to B leads to C. But that cannot lead to faith. At the end of the day, someone may even very well say, that seems true, but I don't believe it. At the end of the day, we don't offer an airtight argument. We offer an airtight person. We point and we lead to Jesus, someone who is more. And how do we know? How do we know this? How do we have assurance of this? I love how Paul is speaking to the skeptic right here. His answer is the resurrection. Jesus was dead. He died on the cross for you and for me, but the proof isn't in his death. It's in his resurrection. And resurrection, this particular word, has never meant that Jesus almost died and slowly resuscitated himself and staggered around for 40 days. Resurrection never meant, well, he died, but I've been so inspired by his death, it's as if he's alive. It was never meant to capture this idea of a broader delusionary idea that, that, that those who come later are thinking, wow, those people were crazy, but I'm going to love to follow a crazy person. No, like the idea of resurrection always meant someone had died and physically come back 
to life. And the Apostle Paul is saying, look, the assurance that we've got the right one, the one that you don't know about, the one that's actually truer than all the other gods that you have, is because he died and he came back to life. And nobody else has done that. And I was an adamant, you know, you could just imagine Paul at different points. This is more of a summary of what he said rather than just a word-for-word script. And you can imagine the conversations he'd had in the synagogue and in the marketplace telling his own story. Look, I was all against this, folks, until I met this resurrected Jesus myself on a road to Damascus. Look, it cost me a lot. It cost me my career. It cost me all of my influence, but I couldn't help it because I had to follow him because all these people are saying they saw someone who had died and rose again, and they're dying for this claim, unwilling to relent of what they said they saw, touched, and felt. And then I saw him. And I can't help but tell you of what I've seen to lead you to someone more. And what's the answer? It's to repent. To turn from what you've been worshiping and to center it in on this man that has the assurance this world over because of his resurrection, that the way this world is heading, he is sitting over all the world and we will pay account to him unless we embrace him fully. Paul ultimately doesn't think he can present an airtight argument, but he knows what he can do. Lead to someone more, Jesus. And that's our call at the end of the day. There's been a quite a bit of buzz lately around Mr. Rogers um, because of this new documentary that's coming out. I thought it was the one on Amazon, Mr. Rogers and Me, but it's not that one. There's one actually in theaters and watching the trailer. I'm just super excited about it. I want to watch it. But one thing that, that Fred Rogers has just imprinted in me that I, I just loved around the way he saw impact. He said this, and this is so true for us today, deep and simple is far more essential than shallow and complex. Deep and simple is far more essential than shallow and complex. And there is no message more deep and simple. There is no person more deep, robust, and yet simple than Jesus and what he did on the cross and that he rose again. You don't have to have a PhD to be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to step into this complex philosophical milieu in order to be considered one of his and to know the joy and the more that he has to offer. It's something so deep, so simple, that has great riches that you can mine your whole life over, and yet so dimple. Dimple? So simple and so deep. Not dimple, yeah, it works. <laughs> so lead them to someone more. Someone deep, someone simple. But what happens next here in our text, you know, after Paul gives his response? Um, is there like a revival? As we've seen at different points in Acts, there's been these moments like thousands give their life to Christ and come to know him. Is there like this great moment where there's this new movement happening in Athens? No. Actually, Paul gets mocked. And you want to know why he gets mocked? Because of the resurrection. <laughs> he actually gets mocked. Why? Because, listen, people in the first century are not as naive as so many people want us to think. The resurrection is a really hard concept. Dead people stay dead. They got that. And you're like, your big thing is some dude who died and came back to life? That's it? A lot of people mocked. So don't be surprised if you still get mocked. Even if you're, you know, very thoughtfully engaged in very countercultural worldviews or conversations. But I love verse 34. This is where it brings it home. But some men and women joined him and believed. 
among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And Paul saw worship everywhere. When he looked for common ground and cracks and he led to someone more, sure he was mocked, but some believed. Some people said that. That makes the most sense out of the world I've ever heard. That's the more I've been looking for. That is the unknown God, the one that's better than all these other gods. And isn't that worth it? All that work, kind of getting to know that culture, being able to quote their own poets? Aren't they worth it? Think about some of your own family members and coworkers and friends and the people that are in their life. Don't you want other followers of Jesus to be doing this? To have very thoughtful conversations about what is actually happening in our world so that we can talk with rather than talk past each other, that we can know how to share the gospel with folks in meaningful ways, to have conversations rather than diatribes. So go back to that moment. There you are at the very beginning we talked about this. There you are standing in that conference room or at that homeowners association meeting or sitting at happy hour with some friends. And they ask you, so, so what do you believe anyway? How will you respond? Are you engaging these three practices today so you're prepared for that moment? So you know where to start. So you, you, you have an awareness of the world and, and wh- what avenues we're using to chase after these deep-seated longings. Do you know common ground? Are you aware of some of the cracks? And are you prepared to lead to someone more? I mean, will you do the work? You have this church that surrounds you. You have the Holy Spirit who's been entrusted to you. Do you have the discipline to keep at it? You're called to this, and this isn't a burden but a joy. How will you respond? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have this brilliant example of how followers of Jesus have been seeking to build common ground, to reveal cracks, and to proclaim the gospel in a diverse forms of ways. May we learn from Paul's example so that we can talk with our neighbors, our, our friends, our family members, those that we love deeply about Jesus, the one and only way to salvation. May we have discipline to see worship everywhere. One, to guard our own hearts and how we're leading our lives. But then two, to know what is grabbing the hearts of so many around us. And may you give us the courage to lead to someone more and the compassion for our neighbor to actually share that news when the opportunities come. God, thank you. Thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing in the world. What a privilege. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.